You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. As we begin our time together in God's Word this morning, I'm mindful of what is often the desire of our hearts as represented in the movies we watch, in the books we read, whether it be major motion pictures like the Marvel movie series caught up in the phenomenal and the supernatural, or whether it be in maybe more relevant and more applicable, more believable, more normal lives caught up in books and other type of representations, we often read ourselves into these plot lines with the desire to wonder if we were in such similar situations, would we have such courage? Would we have such hope? We're a people who want to have hope, hope in all kinds of places, but ultimately hope in the possibility of what we would do, of who we would be, of how it would come to pass if faced with similar opportunity, similar challenge, similar struggle. How would we respond? We can imagine all we want. The truth is more concerning than we'd otherwise like to imagine. Studies have been done. Anything from why do those around the bully in school not speak to and step up to the bully in front of and on behalf of others? Or why does the story of the Good Samaritan seem so exceptional versus normal when an injustice is happening anywhere from the street side to the gas station? So why does one remain so silent at work when a coworker rants and raves and goes off in another and one does not speak up on behalf of another? The truth is, we have these imaginations of us being a people in such circumstances where we would otherwise have courage and have confidence and speak with such certainty, but oftentimes that's not what happens. Well, we will see this morning in our text in Matthew 26, that's not unique to us, it's common to all of us, including the very disciples of Jesus himself. Seemingly the ones who, if they had anything of a home court advantage, they would have it. They would have such an advantage. And yet, as Jesus will detail for them, illustrating his point with one of them, they will all fall away, at least for a time. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, seeing the life of Christ written by the record of one of his disciples, Matthew. Again, another captivating observation to make in light of the story that we're going to learn this morning. As we see this unfold before us, 
we can see and recognize the reality of what's going to take place here in the text. Just to again remind you by way of review, we left off last week learning about the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 30. As they had sung a hymn in verse 30, it says, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So you can imagine they're seemingly having a conversation and interacting Jesus' teaching. That takes us to our text now, verse 31. Matthew writes, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. What we see here in the text is this is a conversation happening as they're walking together from one place to another. They've just had their last supper together before what would eventually become the arrest of Jesus. And they're about to head into this place where we see in John chapter 17 to be detailed for us next week in the text, but the great high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying with his disciples, initially with them and at point some part removed from them, praying that this eve of what's about to take place, the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, would otherwise pass if the Father had another way for this cup to pass. Nevertheless, he says, may your will be done. And so here we have the eve of this is this conversation taking place. This is literally on the way within hours of Jesus' arrest. And Jesus outlines for us here what is disbelieving to us and certainly to the disciples. The first lesson we want to learn here in our text is despair detailed. Despair detailed. You notice what Jesus says in verse 31. You will all fall away. You will all fall away. Now, this idea of fall, this term he uses here is this idea as if someone kind of in the idea of the vernacular is like you are walking and then you trip and fall. It's this imagery to say that you are headed in the right direction and then you are indeed knocked over. It's not knocked over by somebody else. It's the idea of the action that you're going to take yourself. You will all fall away. He makes this comprehensive statement. Peter, of course, counters. Look at how Peter says it. So audacious in verse 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I want to be very clear what's happening in the text here. I think a lot of times Peter can rightly be pointed out single-handedly and wrongly be pointed out. Jesus is not saying, Peter, you're going to fall away and no one else is. He's saying they're all going to fall away and they are all in disbelief and they're all doubting. This is sometimes a misnomer, for example, doubting Thomas. 
Thomas later on has the nickname given to him as Doubting Thomas throughout church history because of the conversation he later would have when he is told of Jesus' resurrection. And he says, unless I put my fingers in his side and touch him with my very hands, I will not believe he is resurrected. But to be clear, as we'll see in the coming weeks, they all doubted Jesus' resurrection. Similarly here, they're all being spoken of as a way of that they're going to fall away from Christ. What's shocking is how Peter doubles down with more pride. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. This declaration, Peter is placing his confidence in this respect as to how he would respond. Now, what you need to recognize is what Jesus says, why will they fall away? Why will this happen? And then he quotes a text from Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 13. It's a prophecy, and I want you to recognize the significance of what's being said here. Let me just read it to you. Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9 is the text from part of it that Jesus is quoting. Listen to what Zechariah prophesies. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one who refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will all call upon my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. What I want to highlight for you in the text is what's going on in the prophecy that Jesus is pointing to, and why is that prophecy given? What's going on in the prophecy is that God through Zechariah is speaking of a time, of which is now here in our text in Matthew 26, where the shepherd, referring to Jesus, will indeed be struck. And the idea of him being struck is this vernacular of what we'll later come to understand, he will be crucified. And in his arrest and trial and torture and crucifixion, Instead of standing by his side, all of his followers will indeed abandon him. They will be scattered. The question is why, though? Is this just simply a lesson in the lack of human resolve? A lesson in the lack of courage? Well, Zechariah tells us why. Because God is purifying for himself a people. It says how he will refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. It's this imagery in Zechariah that God is indeed refining all of those who claim to be God's people in the end who will show themselves to be God's people, not by their initial response, but by their ultimate resolve in Christ, through faith in Christ, by the Spirit of God, which is how we see the text and the story eventually unfold. For our purposes to recognize here this morning, as we think about this despair, to recognize the significance of what's being detailed by Christ. He now gives Peter even more detail. He says there in verse 34, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, just sort of this metaphor like before the new day dawns. You will deny me three times. 
That's specific people. Not just saying principally, he's saying three times. This is going to happen. And Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Friends, let me just be very clear what's happening. Peter's doing something in the text that's happening in this room. And it's this. It's very easy to be a Christian with other Christians. It's very easy to make all the prayers and pledges and promises in this room, in this assembly, when there's seemingly nothing on the line. Peter's seemingly at his best in the presence of Christ, with the people of Christ, the disciples of Christ, but he shows himself to be seemingly at his worst when you remove him and you put him in places of temptation. That is not unique to a disciple. That's common to all followers of Christ. And I say this because I want there to be a a bit of humility and solidarity if we can be honest with one another to realize we're not just reading here as someone's autobiography, we're reading the reality of what's true even by us today in temptation. One of the most shameful times in my life was when I was A new Christian, teenager, remember having this leather necklace with a cross on it, and I was on a trip in Colorado where I used to live, had gone back to, was on a backpacking expedition for about a month with a bunch of people whom I did not know had been arranged through this program that I was in. And I was a teenager, kind of swept up in the moment with these people over these weeks, not behaving flagrantly immoral, but by no means noticeably godly, and certainly had not identified myself as a Christian, been rather spiritually dull at best. A couple weeks in, to this trip, someone in the group asked me, I see that necklace. Why do you have that necklace? And then they followed up that question with this question. Are you a Christian? And in a nanosecond of a moment, I had this awareness of how I've been behaving of who I would otherwise be identifying with, and I said, no. And I was. I said no, both out of shame for how I had acted and fear for what they'd otherwise think of me if I was known as a Christian now to them. That trip eventually came to an end. I'd like to tell you that the trip ended well with me going back at the end of the trip and saying, actually, I'd like to correct that earlier statement from a week or two ago. No such conversation took place. That conversation riddled my conscience for a while. Of when I had otherwise been asked point blank, 
putting the ball on a tee. I could not miss it. I was asked the question. It simply took a three-letter word response to make an affirmation. Are you a Christian? And I chose the word no instead of yes. I say this because it's so easy to be a Christian with other Christians, but all of a sudden it becomes so much harder to be a Christian when you're surrounded by those who are not Christians. And to see a biography of this, look ahead in Matthew 26. Jumping ahead into the storyline here, after Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, after the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, before Jesus is, after Jesus is, is before Caiaphas and the council, look at what happens here in verse 69. The very thing Jesus said comes to pass. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, outside the courtyard of where this council is meeting, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. It was guilt by association. Verse 70, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, so now I'm not talking to Peter directly, she's talking about Peter to others around her, and she says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 72, and again, he denied it with an oath. He's now swearing, he's now pledging, he's now promising, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your account, excuse me, your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I won't ask for a show of hands. I'll just raise mine on behalf of anybody else here who can identify with Peter of what it's like to be given an opportunity to go public with your identification with Christ and to not do so. I don't know if you've put the storylines together, but it's captivating to me to see what Matthew is describing here. You'll remember earlier in Matthew 26, verse 14, if you look, go back to verse 14, it says, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Later on in verse 25, it says, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi, referring to Jesus now in this conversation? Jesus said to him, You have said so. So the question is, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? At initial glance, you might say, Wait a minute, they look like they're the same, friend. They are not the same. 
I want to be very clear about this because this is very important as you self-assess and as you assess others accordingly because they are fundamentally categorically different people. Judas is in a category of what the Bible describes as an apostate. This type of language comes up, for example, explicitly in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. This is somebody who had professed to believe in Christ, even identified with the people of Christ, saying that they believed in the word of Christ, said they were dwelt with the spirit of Christ, but eventually in time, over time, showed themselves not only by the decisions they make, but the professions they claimed eventually to walk away from Christ, never to return again, showing themselves to have never truly believed. There are many, many today who profess to be followers of Christ, but are similar and the same as Judas, when given the opportunity, would betray him indefinitely and permanently, and are only interested in Christ in so much as what Christ will give them. Friends, that's tragic and common. To differentiate that from Peter... Peter, and just to be clear, so we're not sort of highlighting Peter, what Jesus says in verse 31 of chapter 26, you will all fall away. And just to show how it happens, look at verse 56. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So just to be clear, what we're seeing with Peter is true with all of them, which is when given the opportunity, they abandon. But that's not the end of their story. What, what do we see here in the text? We see with Peter in verse 75, after this sort of compounding time of denial, he brings himself otherwise to the point at which he would weep bitterly. Friends, here is the good news about the bad news about Christians who can, in times of cowardice, distance themselves from identifying with Christ. That is not the final story. This goes back to the very video we watched about shame. If we process what we have done wrongly, we will process what Christ has accomplished for us as a substitute. God is not promising his son as a savior in exchange for the promise we make to him that we will show we were worth it by how we live after he forgives us. Jesus' forgiveness of us is not up to that point of which we believe, but everything thereafter is questionable. How will you then live? Jesus' commitment to us is for all of our life, past, present, and future, as to how he forgives us. And the indwelling nature of the Holy Spirit continuing to work itself out in us shows us the reality that we can have very dark, difficult, and despairing seasons, but that's not the final story. Friends, and you go on to see this reality in Peter's life, it's the same reality that a lot of you illustrate yourselves. You know of a time when you have not walked faithfully for Christ. That's not the end of your story. Yesterday, for those of you who are not here, Jeannie referenced it. We had a youth conference. It was awesome. And I just want to say 
to all of you who are a part of that conference by helping, let me just say, as your pastor, thank you. It was awesome to see so many of us gathered together. In fact, just to encourage you, for those of you who are here, when I was talking to the Ligonier staff afterwards about how it went and give us some points of reference and what we could do a better job in, the director, I think, with no flattery intended, said, listen, just to be quite clear, I have never had a conference from the national conference, which has everybody and their brother come to it, to these regional conferences. I've never had a conference that's had this many volunteers, number one. Number two, this many volunteers who said they're going to come actually come. And this many volunteers who have such a servant-heartedness to their desire to serve in any possible way that they can. And I just said, praise God, and I'm going to give encouragement to them. But in this conference that you guys helped facilitate by volunteering and making this thing happy, in this conference, one of the things that we were talking about in the question and answer panel was what does it look like to represent Christ? What does it look like to be able to lead your friends to faith in Christ? How do you do that? And one of the things that Nathan said that I just wanted to double click on and exclamate and sort of highlight was he said, listen, the important thing that he recommends and I recommend as well is as soon as you engage in new space with new people, find some way to come out quickly. You're a Christian. And you do that if for no other reason, for yourself. You do that because you know that your heart is prone to deny and to reject and to dismiss what otherwise you might be tempted to, to say, I want to come out public. This is as much for me as it is for you. I want you to know about me, what it needs to be known about me, be remembered. I'm with Christ. I mean, think of me as an idiot, a fool, crazy, whatever. I, I go, Jesus goes, I go. Wherever he says, I believe. Whatever he wants me to do, I do. And I know that's crazy. We could talk more about it as you get to know me, but I just want you to know I'm with Jesus. And now, now your conscience is bound. Like, well, there was that PR thing. Well, now I got to live it. Now I'm going to be perfect, but I want to go public with it. Peter puts himself in a public place without Jesus, given the opportunity one time, two times, three times, identify with Christ. He says, no. He basically, in modern day vernacular, says, over my dead body, I'm with him. And as Jesus prophesied, so it came to pass, the rooster crowed. This is despair detailed. But I don't want you to miss what's laden in the text and illustrated in Peter's story as well as the disciples overall. Secondly, hope promised. Hope promised. Go back to Matthew 26, verse 31 and following. So Jesus predicts what's going to happen with all of them. He brings Zechariah in as a witness, testifying, Zechariah 13, and then verse 32. After, but, but, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Friends, do not miss in these small amount of words, two very impactful, important points here. Number one, resurrection. Number two, forgiveness and restoration. Resurrection, restoration. And it's all tied to the fact that Jesus will be resurrected, which is sweet and appropriate in light of the fact that we're on the eve of another 
annual observation of what is a weekly reminder, which is why the Lord's people gather together every Sunday because we gather every Sunday in light of the resurrection, just so that's not missed on you. That's why we're here every single Sunday. It's why whenever we're at, we're meeting every single Sunday. It's in light of the resurrection. Well, here what we see in the text is that the resurrection gives confidence of a future restoration. Jesus says, after I am raised up. Jesus is as confident of his resurrection as he is of their rejection. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He predicted it. He's talked about it. He's taught on it. They've still been curious and confused, mysterious and veiled, but it nevertheless has been described for them. He will be laid in the tomb. He will be there like Jonah for three days, and then he will come back to life physically appearing to over 500 witnesses. As present as you and I are present in person, so Jesus will be present. Significance here is first and foremost in the significance of what it means to believe in, not simply a loving rabbi, a patient teacher, a spiritual reformer, the significance here is to believe in a resurrected Savior. Without the resurrection, deals off. Good Friday is only so good as the fact that Sunday is coming. And what we see here in the text is the significance of why this is so tied to hope. The hope for the restoration is connected to the resurrection. Jesus says, after I am raised up, and then here comes the second part, this restoration, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, just to be clear, what we're seeing in the text, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. He is not just talking about a geographical marker, like, hey, I'm going to arrive at Walmart before you get there. Hey, I'm going to get to like your know, homestead before you get there. That's not his point. He's not talking about geography. He's talking about a reunion and a restoring of relationship. The, the inclination, you can just sort of see Jesus tipping his hand to say, there will be restoration. There will be a recovery in our reunion of relationship with one another. Friend, this is why, one of the reasons why the Lord's Supper was given to the people of God, so that we might, each and every time we take the Lord's Supper together, be reminded and be restored back to our relationship to Christ. What was our first song that we sang this morning? What was the line in it? Lord, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Do you, do you, are you, are you self-aware of that? Do you feel that? Sometimes the wandering is not flagrantly in immorality. Sometimes it's in spiritual apathy. We just become indifferent. God becomes insignificant, and we'd rather try life day after day by our own reasoning, by our own rationale, by our own relationships apart from Christ. But what we see here in the text is that that is not the final story. Hope is promised. Later on, according to the Fox's Book of Martyrs, 
The story, as traditionally recorded about Jesus, is that plans for, from Nero to arrest Peter well after Jesus' ascension and the beginning spread of Christianity, as recorded in the book of Acts, well after Jesus' ascension to be at the right hand of the Father, Nero, the leader of Rome at the time, who was persecuting and burning Christians, word has gotten out that he intends to arrest and punish Peter. Plans of this are learned by other Christians who tell Peter, you got to get out of town. You got to get out of Rome. Peter initially makes plans to do just that. Spare his life that he might continue to do work for Christ. But then changes his mind and submits himself to the plan as Nero had outlined it and is arrested and is eventually crucified like his Savior. However, as the tradition is laid out, believing himself not to be worthy of death like his Savior, he asked that he would be crucified upside down. To not be crucified in the same manner because he could not in any way, kind of the spirit of John the Baptist, being unworthy to tie his sandals, Peter being unworthy to even die like his Savior would die. Later we would see in the writings of the gospel writers before this event would take place in Peter's crucifixion and before Jesus would even ascend, he would commission Peter to feed his sheep. There could be no greater delight and joy than to see God's people being restored to relationship with Christ and walking with him. Here's what I want to recognize in the church. And this is very important for every Christian here to realize. We don't all walk faithfully and we don't all walk perfectly in the same direction for every stage and season of life. Tragically, there are those who profess to be Christians who will become like Judas and ultimately deny or like Demas and deny because they love this present world more than Christ. And they never truly believe and surrender their life to Christ. That's more true than I think we're willing to accept. But sadly, and yet encouragingly, there are others of us or others from us that will for seasons of time walk in disobedience and sadly receive what is necessary, as Hebrews chapter 12 says, discipline from the Lord. Hebrews 12 says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, like a loving father does his child. And God, by providence and by people, uses different events and relationships in our lives to bring us back to our confession. The key is, when that is brought to our attention, are we like Peter, who goes out in verse 75 and weeps bitterly over his sin? Friend, listen to me. There is no sin you can commit that is greater than the grace that God can give in Christ his Son. So for those of you who feel like Peter, you have wandered, you have denied but in your heart of hearts, you know there is only hope in Christ and by life in Him, by faith in Him, by trust in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the only way that you can be forgiven of your sins. Friends, I'm telling you today, come back home. So many 
too many are wandering Miami as spiritual Peters living in seasons of denial of the Savior. Come back home. Others of you perhaps have never come home because you do not know Christ. I'm asking, I'm calling on you to listen to what the Savior provides, a promise of what he delivered, his resurrection, and a promise of restoration to him. For those of you who have never responded by repenting of your sins and putting your trust alone in Christ, even today as I speak to you, would you do that? Would you in prayer cry out to God and say, God, forgive me the sinner. Be merciful to me. I have no hope under heaven by which I can be forgiven, which I can be saved than by faith in your son. And in him, I place my faith, the resurrected son of God. Others of you, looking at Peter, perhaps identifying Judas is around you, you might think, oh, I will never fall away. Friend, careful in your pride that you might find yourself in a position of self-reliance. Instead, trusting in the Holy Spirit to preserve and to protect what he has done in you. Father, here's the good news that the Father's promise in Philippians. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. So if our hope is in what the Father has done in us, what God has begun in us, that will begin, that will begin and that will end by the, God, the Father's good work in us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.